Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are mostly theological and biblical, but today, historical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. This is the fourth of eight episodes in a series that will track the history of the 2nd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry USA, Southern men who fought in the Union Army in the Civil War. Don't call them Yankees. One of them was my ancestor, my grandmother's grandfather. We're following them from the formation of the regiment through its first major action in the Battle of Mill Springs. This is a story reflecting my belief that a person's life is not small and inconsequential because it's without fame, that great historical events lend their greatness to the individual lives that participate in them, and that those events have acquired their great historical significance through the participation of thousands of unsung individuals like my ancestor, and perhaps yours as well. Chapter 4, First Fire, Battle at Camp Wildcat, October 1861. It's fitting that the first test for the fighting Tennesseans from Roan County would come from the man whose name they had already come to loathe, Felix Zollicoffer. In their eagerness to get into that fight, however, they had no idea how close they came to losing their own new and popular commander as a casualty of politics. Politics and the East Tennesseans George Thomas was aware of the White House concern for East Tennessee and of the President's intense interest that the territory be taken back as soon as possible. Even before he left Washington, Thomas personally urged Winfield Scott, who was still the General-in-Chief of the Army, to authorize him to stage an invasion through the Cumberland Gap. After he arrived at Camp Dick Robinson and saw how much of the growing force was composed of East Tennessee loyalists, he was all the more determined to carry out an offensive operation along that line. He immediately began planning such an operation as well as he could while working to organize his camp without a staff. The volunteers at Camp Robinson felt powerful because of their numbers, and they were impatient to march home as a liberating army. Thomas wanted to make that happen but he also understood that his force was woefully unprepared for combat, both in training and in materiel. Enduring the grumbling of his restive volunteers, he set about, in his methodical way, to remedy both of those problems, with a view toward a movement on the Cumberland Gap before the year's end. He was making headway, too. He he had acquired a new regiment of cavalry composed of Kentucky volunteers and a small battery of artillery that had arrived from Ohio, and the men in camp were beginning to look like soldiers, a little bit. Thomas's plans, however, were stalled before they could even get started. It was caught in a pincer between the immediate issues of his volunteer brigade and the fuzzy, indecisive, contradictory, politically motivated thinking of his superiors. Thomas had scarcely begun his preparations when, on October 10th, Senator Andrew Johnson arrived to tour the camp. During his visit, Johnson also delivered to Thomas a letter from Brigadier General O.M. Mitchell, the new commander of the newly created Department of the Ohio. The message stunned and perplexed Thomas. It informed him that the Secretary of War, 
had ordered Mitchell to take command of the troops at Camp Robinson and prepare for a forward movement to the Cumberland Gap and from there into East Tennessee, what Thomas was already preparing to do. Now, at this time, there was no settled plan or strategy for the Western theater of the war. Now, in this early phase of the war, one hand in the Lincoln administration did not always know what the other hand was doing. It seems that Mitchell, a West Point graduate who had been out of the Army for years, was ambitious for quick promotion and had lobbied Secretary Cameron vigorously for the appointment to lead the invasion. Cameron was one of many in Washington who never fully approved of the Virginian Thomas's elevation to command and may have been looking for a way to nullify it. Or he may have simply been unaware of all that Thomas was doing, but he certainly was perturbed that no move had yet been made to take East Tennessee. Well, Thomas was furious when he read Mitchell's letter. Stung by what he regarded as both an undeserved emotion and a personal rebuke, he immediately fired back a terse letter to Mitchell dated October 11th. I have been doing all in my power to prepare the troops for a move on Cumberland Ford and to seize the Tennessee and Virginia Railroad, and shall continue to do all I can to assist you until your arrival here. But justice to myself requires that I ask to be relieved from duty with these troops, since the Secretary of War thought it necessary to supersede me in command without, as I conceive, any just cause for so doing. At the same time, he also wrote to Sherman, his direct superior who had taken over command of the Department of Cumberland from Anderson. I received an official communication today from Brigadier General O.M. Mitchell informing me that he had been ordered by the Secretary of War to repair to this camp and prepare the troops for a forward movement. As I have been doing all in my power to effect this very thing, to have the execution of it taken from me when nearly prepared to take the field is extremely mortifying. I therefore respectfully to ask to be relieved from duty with the troops on the arrival of General Mitchell. Uh, Sherman himself seems as surprised and dismayed as Thomas, but also subject to fluctuating and uncertain orders himself, he wrote back to reassure his former classmate. You are authorized to go on and prepare your command for active service. General Mitchell is subject to my orders, and I will, if possible, give you the opportunity to complete what you have begun. Of course, I would do all I can to carry out your wishes, but feel that the affairs of Kentucky call for the united action of all engaged. Well, it was vague, but believing now that Sherman would back him up, Thomas withdrew his request to be relieved and continued to train his men and try to get them properly equipped. Alvis Hicks, my great-great-grandfather, and his comrades in the 2nd Tennessee probably never knew about any of these intrigues, but only that the pace of their drilling had been stepped up. Meanwhile, the Confederates in Tennessee would not be content to wait for Thomas to invade their territory. They were determined to strike first. General Johnston's Strategic Plan the first major campaign in the Western theater of war would be the battle over Kentucky. Both sides were determined to keep that state. A 500-mile border separated it from Tennessee. By fall, the Federals had the advantage of an organized military presence in the state, in significant part through the volunteers from Kentucky and Tennessee. The Confederates, however, 
had the advantage of a unified command of this entire front under one outstanding soldier, Albert Sidney Johnston, who was regarded at this time by both sides as the best general in either army, except, of course, for Pierre G.T. Beauregard, who considered himself to be the best general in either army. Now, Johnston knew that he was outnumbered on the long front two to one, but he also knew that the Union command was divided, and he decided to exploit that situation through initiative and deception. He first embarked on a shrewd but actually pretty risky campaign of psychological warfare that included threatening moves, tactical raids, propaganda, and misinformation. He made deliberate overstatements of troop strength and boldly indicated that a massive offensive was in the works. And these statements were printed in southern papers, repeated in the north, and recorded as facts in reports passed among the federal high command. Now, Johnson's main risk was that he also raised unrealistic expectations of the southern populace, who became convinced that early victory was at hand. The strategy of bluff apparently worked like a charm on Sherman, first of all. I am convinced from many facts, he wrote to George McClellan in Washington, that A. Sidney Johnston is making Herculean efforts to strike a great blow in Kentucky, that he designs to move from Bowling Green on Lexington, Louisville, and Cincinnati. Now, why Johnston never made that massive attack was a mystery to Sherman, apparently to his dying day, for he was still perplexed years later when he wrote his memoir. The Confederate general's mind games help us understand why Sherman decided he needed 200,000 men to gain victory in the West. In turn, prompting the northern papers to conclude that for all his brilliance, Sherman had gone mad. One of the instruments Johnston used to convince Sherman of this design was his aggressive brigadier, 49-year-old Felix Kirk Zollicoffer. By late September, Johnston had established a line from which he could threaten the entire federal hold on Kentucky. Still, his line was alarmingly thin and he needed to strike before the Union generals figured out how thin it was. The key to eastern Kentucky was the control of the Wilderness Road from the Cumberland Gap to Boonesboro. While the argument was still going on between the Union High Command as to whether and how to invade Tennessee, Johnston determined to seize control of that artery. By doing so, he would thus gain control of the entire bluegrass region, acquire access to the Ohio River, and establish a stranglehold on the most vigorously pro-Union area in the South. From that position, Zollicoffer could threaten both Camp Dick Robinson and the Kentucky State Capitol. Zollicoffer Marches North Zollicoffer had already created much havoc in his zone. On September 9th, he moved his brigade 5,400 strong through the Cumberland Gap into Kentucky. Over the next several days, his men took possession of Cumberland Ford at Pineville, scattered two raw volunteer units, and easily defeated a contingent of home guards from Barberville. His confidence was strong and his men's morale was high. They called him Pappy Zolly, Pap for short. On September 23rd, General Thomas dispatched Colonel Theophilus Garrard from Camp Dick Robinson with his 7th Kentucky Volunteers to Wildcat Mountain when also called Rock Castle Heights and London Heights, to block Zollicoffer's progress. Zollicoffer, a native Tennessean despite his European-sounding name, was not a professional soldier, and his appointment as a general was admittedly political. 
a Nashville newspaper editor, famous for his fiery editorials. He was also a Tennessee state politician who had served three terms in the U.S. House of Representatives. He had opposed secession, had campaigned for constitutional unionist John Bell, had been a delegate to the 1861 Washington Peace Conference. He was, however, a devout believer in states' rights, and when Tennessee declared independence, he determined to fight for his home state. Some 20 years earlier, he had served briefly as a lieutenant in the Second Seminole War, so he wasn't completely devoid of military experience. But even he did not think that was enough to qualify him for high command. He declined Governor Isham Harris's offer of a generalship over state forces, but Harris was insistent, and Zollicoffer finally accepted. The first task was to secure the rebellious eastern region. Under Harris's orders, and with 4,000 men, Zollicoffer established a stronghold in Knoxville, and then began to seal the Cumberland Gap and other routes along the border between East Tennessee and Kentucky. It was Zollicoffer's troops that the men from Roan County had to dodge in order to make it to Camp Dick Robinson. Soon he was made a general officer in the Confederate States of America and put under Johnston's command. Though keenly aware of Zollicoffer's inexperience, Johnston liked his initiative and aggressiveness. He decided to use that and directed Zollicoffer to probe the Union's soft underbelly in the Cumberland area and see how far he could go. On the left, he had Leonidas Polk facing off against Grant near Columbus, and in the center, Simon Bolivar Buckner penetrating as far as Bowling Green. Garrard, like Samuel Carter, had been recruiting his own regiment from scratch, and he now had almost a thousand men, but they were still little more than warm bodies, not yet trained and still poorly equipped. They were accompanied by the 1st Kentucky Cavalry under Colonel Frank Walford another green unit that had barely begun its training. When he arrived at the location, Garrard chose an excellent position, a natural rock fortress on a ridge three miles above the Rock Castle River at a fork in the road. He immediately set his men toward building extended fortifications, trenches, rifle pits, and, and obstacles. This was Camp Wildcat. Addison Hart describes the terrain. Moving southwest along the mountain, the area becomes much steeper and gradually turns into Infantry Ridge, a rocky spot, dense in vegetation, where Garrard was positioned. Southeast of the headquarters is the steepest point of Wildcat Mountain, a place known since the day of battle as Hoosier Knob, littered with all forms of defense. Abatees, rocks, trees, fallen and standing. Here was Walford's HQ. Moving northwest of Camp Wildcat HQ, Wilderness Road turns into Winding Blades Road, where the trees and darkness are thicker than anywhere before. Farther northeast is Back Eye Ridge. On September 29th, Garrard reported to his superiors that Zollicoffer was drawing alarmingly close and pleaded for equipment and reinforcements. He continued sending desperate messages. The closer Zollicoffer came, the more frantic were Garrard's dispatches worried that his superiors had put him in a no-win situation. If I do not receive more troops, I intend to abandon this place, he insisted. I have no idea of having my men butchered up here where they have a force of six to one. I would like to hear from you immediately. Aggravating Garrard's problems was a cold front that moved through. The pleasant Indian summer weather of early October gave way to heavy, chilling rain. 
his men didn't have sufficient coats and blankets. Hundreds became ill. Sickness reduced his already outnumbered force to six hundred. One thing that saved Garrard was that the rebel force had no supply line, had to live off the land, and the column was making slow progress as a result. Zolikoffer wrote, The country is so poor we had exhausted the forage on the road for fifteen miles back in twenty-four hours. Even so, by October 17th, Zolikoffer's main force was at the Laurel River. In two more days, he was only four miles from Camp Wildcat, and Garrard was trying to decide whether to risk court-martial by pulling back without orders. Thomas could wait no longer to move. But the general's decision was complicated by the fact that he had no one to send who was fully trained and prepared for battle. He waited as long as he could to pull the trigger. Until now, he didn't even have a senior officer ready for battlefield command. That changed, however, on October 19th with the arrival of Albin Schiff, a professional soldier recently immigrated from Europe and newly appointed as Brigadier General of the U.S. Army. Thomas immediately assigned him the readiest of his troops, a beefed-up brigade of 7,000, including artillery, and ordered him to take command at Camp Wildcat. He was directed to make all haste. Chef divided his force into two columns. The main column, comprising the 33rd Indiana Infantry, 17th Ohio Infantry, the 14th Ohio Infantry, and a battery from the 1st Ohio Light Artillery, were already at Camp Coburn an advanced position at Crab Orchard almost 20 miles south of Camp Dick Robinson. These state-supported units were better equipped and had been training longer and were better disciplined. So they would directly reinforce the Green volunteers at Camp Wildcat from the north down the Wilderness Road and meet the enemy's advance head-on. The 1st and 2nd Tennessee, commanded by Colonel Robert Byrd and Colonel James Carter, respectively, followed by the 38th Ohio Infantry, made up the support column marching out from Camp Dick Robinson. They would have an extra day's march, but there was no point in sending all the units out at the same time from the same place anyway. The roads were too narrow and difficult for the entire brigade to depart at once. The rear column wouldn't get there any faster. Its objective was not merely to turn back the rebel attack, but to defeat and destroy Zollicoffer's brigade in one stroke. If he could do that, then Johnson's entire right would also be exposed, and the way would be open to Knoxville and East Tennessee. Despite the fact that his army was not fully ready, it was in Thomas's mind first to stop Zollicoffer, next to destroy his force before he made it back to his border stronghold, and then to follow up with an advance into Tennessee. Now, to accomplish this, he would need to grow his battalion into a full division. He had already put his request to Sherman for more troops and all the munitions and supplies his volunteers needed, but were still stalled by incomprehensible delays. And considering that his untested brigade was going up against one that had already won several fights, albeit small ones, Thomas's plan was ambitious and risky, but it was sound nevertheless. It was helped by the fact that Zollicoffer did not expect him. The uncooperative weather, though, complicated everything. The heavy rains of the preceding week had turned the dirt road up the mountain into a slippery muck. The more men who passed, the worse it got. Wagons and cannons sunk to their axles. If Sheff could not get to Camp Wildcat before his holocoffer, it would make things very difficult, especially if the rebels could drive out Colonel Garrard first and establish their own stronghold to resist Sheff's attack when it finally arrived. On the 20th, the rebel force passed through London, 
and it seemed that they would reach Wildcat before it could be reinforced. It was doubtful that Garrard could hold for long, and therefore critical that Shep get his men there on time. The men knew how serious the situation was and accepted being awakened at 3 a.m. Sunday to continue on a forced march. Stephen Keyes Fletcher, an enlisted man of the 33rd Indiana serving on Colonel Coburn's staff, gives a first-person view of what it was like to march out with Shep that day. The regiment was ready to start at sunup, and most splendidly did he show forth that beautiful Sabbath morning as our boys wound around the foot of the large hill near this town, their bayonets all sparkling in the sun. It was a stirring sight, to me at least. We trudged over the hills and through the muck at a forced march. About noon I came up to Rock Castle River. Here was quite an exciting scene. The regiment had most all crossed. A boatload had just started across as I arrived on the bank. The large elm trees with their wide-spreading branches made almost a perfect arch over the river. Colonel Coburn stood at the landing on his horse, cheering the boys on. The crossing of the boys and the anticipation of a fight three miles ahead filled me with an exciting feeling, and I took off my cap and gave one loud yell. Anx anxious but not unnerved by the rebel encroachment, Gerard did his best to delay Zollicoffer by cutting down trees to block the south road. The delaying tactic worked. It bought him a day. While rebel troops spent their Sunday clearing roads, Garrard sent out Walford's cavalry to do reconnaissance and to harass the rebels. After crossing the Rock Castle River, the Indiana column reformed and distributed ammunition, and then began the final, most difficult stretch of their uphill march. Soon they began meeting wagon load after wagon load of six soldiers from Garrard's regiment, all telling of the skirmishing of pickets. Stephen Fletcher tells how the column made way for a troop of home guards on horseback who passed us going full tilt. Everyone yelled out as they passed, Give em hell, boys! Give em hell! They responded, Yes, we'll give em hell! But before we got to Wildcat, we met them all coming back on a slow trot saying that the pickets had quit fighting and they were not needed. They were really the biggest set of cowards I ever saw. Shep made it to Camp Wildcat shortly after noon with the vanguard of his first column and the rest continued throughout the day to slowly fill the camp as they struggled up the north side of the mountain. There were skirmishes and firefights between the opposing cavalry units that afternoon and evening, but Walford's tactics forced Zollicoffer to delay his attack to the next morning. By nightfall, the numerical odds had drawn almost even. Zollicoffer's men had faced fire, while Sheff's were green, but the latter had the advantage of an excellent defensive position. Meanwhile, early Sunday morning, the 1st and 2nd Tennessee, followed by the 38th Ohio, had finally begun the southward ascent toward Wildcat along the mountain roads that were scarcely worth the name and were already torn up by the passing of the first column. It's not a simple thing to move thousands of men along a narrow mud road through forest and mountain. On the way, they found out that having an easy camp life is not necessarily a good thing for a soldier. Jack Snow made this observation. He says, The men were fat and tired quickly, so the march turned out to be anything but a picnic, even though the weather was cool. They were equipped with a Harper's Ferry musket, ammunition, two blankets, and an extra suit of clothes, eating utensils, etc., packed into a haversack. They were supposed to weigh about 40 pounds, Mr. Snow reminisced. 
But many of the boys gathered up things they wanted to keep. They'd start with a heavy load, and as they became tired or if they got in a skirmish, they'd throw their extras away. Zollicoffer attacks. On Monday morning, the 21st, under Shep's orders, Colonel John Colburn assumed command from Garrard and began placing his troops. He assigned half of his 33rd Indiana to the steep southern rise that was most likely to be attacked first. From them it took its name, Hoosier Knob. It was none too soon. In the pre-dawn darkness, rebel troops of the 17th and 29th Tennessee Infantry were already working their way up toward that knob on the southeast edge of the ridge. Sergeant Fletcher of the 33rd Indiana describes the early morning alarm. About 7 a.m., Monday, 21, while I was eating breakfast with Colonel Coburn, General Sheff rode up and staff and told Colonel Coburn to get his men in line immediately that the enemy were right on us. All was now astir and in excitement. The long roll beat, and in less than ten minutes the regiment was formed and all ready for the word. Four of our companies were sent over west to build breastworks and guard a pass where we expected the enemy to try to flank us. The other four companies, there being two left at Crab Orchard, went east on the hill where the fight took place. I went with this party. Went up double quick, three quarters of a mile. The men were immediately deployed around the hill and down through the gullies. But before this was completed, we were fired upon. Zollicoffer divided his brigade into two battle groups, one to attack Hoosier Knob, the other Infantry Ridge. The battle began with the scattered fire like a skirmish, with soldiers firing at will and not with coordinated volleys. Unlike a typical skirmish, however, the firefight continued for over an hour before there was a recession in the firing while troops on both sides replenished their ammunition. The first Union casualty of the battle occurred about ten minutes after the shooting commenced. Fletcher says, One of our men by the name of McFerrin was shot in the left chest. He walked up the hill to where we were and said, Captain, I'm shot. I'm a dead man. He carried his gun up with him. He died in about five minutes. Zollicoffer's first assault, consisting of several waves, was finally repelled. At midday, the Confederate general rested his men, reorganized his regiments, and brought up his artillery to pound the fortifications. About 2 p.m., he was ready to try again to break Sheff's hold. By now, however, the rest of Sheff's main force had arrived, and he had his own battery in place that immediately returned fire. The artillery duel didn't last long after that. At this point, the numerical match was almost even, and though the fighting was fierce, the rebels charging up the hill to within 30 steps of our men with their hats on their bayonets, the Hoosiers and Ohioans repelled the rebels again. While the battle raged, the Tennesseans and Shep's support column were still toiling up the narrow wilderness road and its side roads. They had marched all day Sunday, slept on the roadside, were up early Monday. The sound of cannon helped motivate them. When the 2nd Tennessee finally reached the battle late that afternoon, Zollicoffer's second assault had mostly played out, though the parting shots were still being fired after dusk. The final rebel attack was an artillery round fired around midnight. Disappointment of some, the Tennesseans never got off a shot of their own. The blue-uniformed Hoosiers would get the credit for this victory, while the irregular-looking Tennesseans had to wait for the next day before they would have their crack at old Zolly.
The Union troops spent the better part of the night repairing the battle-damaged fortifications, anticipating a fresh assault in the morning and wondering if their own commander was contemplating a counterattack. They didn't get much rest. In the dark woods before them they could hear the cadence of drums beating out instructions, the rattle of wagon heels, the bawling complaints of mules, and the tramping of feet. They were told to expect an attack at first light, and there was tightness in many stomachs. The light of dawn and morning reconnaissance revealed an empty valley below. The sounds they had heard all night were not of preparations for combat, but of evacuation. Zollicoffer had withdrawn and headed back to his base at Cumberland Ford. He wrote this in his report to Johnston. Having reconnoitered in force under heavy fire for several hours from heights on the right, left, and front, I became satisfied that it could not be carried otherwise than by immense exposure. I deemed it proper next day to fall back. Thus, he represented the expedition to Wildcat as a reconnaissance in force, not an assault. To him, it was not a battle he lost, but a probing action he declined to pursue. It is true he did not suffer excessive casualties, eleven killed, forty-two wounded, plus the seven killed at Barberville. The combat effectiveness of his brigade was scarcely impeded at all. But Zollicoffer had no desire to spend his manpower in vain charges on a strong position. His decision to pull back was correct, and General Johnston agreed. His men didn't see it that way, however. The same men who had affectionately called him Pappy Zolly before were now calling him Granny Zolly. In the fight at Wildcat, they called Zolly's Folly. Zollicoffer himself seemed somewhat demoralized and remained inactive for a good month. On the other side, Shep's men, Thomas's men, had shown their mettle. They were well-organized, well-commanded, and eager to prove themselves. They would not be scattered like the home guard. Confederate casualties were light, but Union casualties were even lighter. Five killed, twenty wounded. The low numbers of those killed and wounded, in light of the horrific casualties seen in so many Civil War battles, can be attributed to a couple of factors. The heavily wooded environment absorbed much of the firepower of both sides, and much of that firepower consisted of smoothbore muskets, not rifles firing the dreaded, deadly mini-ball. While Zollicoffer minimized the estimation of his defeat, the U.S. Army and the Northern press maximized the importance of Shep's win and exaggerated its size, in some cases grossly so, hilariously so. It was, to be sure, the passing of the first test of volunteer troops in the West and the first calculable Union victory in the Western theater. In, in fact, it was practically the first good military news for the North at all since July with the Bull Run debacle. But it's still hard to explain how the Boston Courier could report a thousand Confederate casualties. General Thomas quickly arrived at Camp Wildcat for a tour of the battlefield and a complete briefing. He was pleased with the way his men measured up to a tough first assignment, a forced march to a hot combat zone, facing confident veterans and turning back a determined attack. Though Shep was unable to destroy or even damage Zollicoffer, he stopped him effectively. The men of the 2nd Tennessee felt a mixture of pride to be part of a successful operation, disappointment that they missed their baptism of fire seemingly by minutes, and relief that none of them got hurt. Their view of the battlefield sobered them, for though it was not as bad as it could be, or as bad as they would see in the future, 
It was more terrible and bloody than anything they had seen before. To them it seemed as though hundreds had been killed, and they could see bloody trails where the dead had been dragged and the wounded crawled away. Jack Snow vividly remembered the sight seventy-four years later. He said, I didn't like it, seeing fellows lying there with their heads shot off, brains scattered all around. It was a terrible sight. Well, they'd see far worse, but none that measured up to the shock of the first time. As Zollicoffer retreated to his stronghold at Cumberland Ford, Thomas ordered Sheff to pursue as far as London and hold there to wait for supplies and reinforcements. The Tennessee troops were certain that they would soon receive orders to push Zollicoffer back through the Cumberland Gap and liberate East Tennessee. Morale was high, for finally they would get to do what they had left their homes to do. In our next episode, we'll see how that hope worked out and the dramatic plan to make way for their return. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>